This morning I want to begin by quoting from Genesis, not the first book in the Bible. Actually, I want to begin by quoting from Genesis, the music group from this, you know, that had Phil Collins and, and Peter Gabriel in it. And I want to quote from one of their songs, one of, one of my favorite songs that they did, which is Land of Confusion. Here, I want you to listen to these lyrics this morning. I must have dreamed a thousand dreams, been haunted by a million screams. I can hear the marching feet, they're moving into the street. Now, did you read the news today? They say the danger's gone away, but I can see the fire still alight, burning into the night. Here's the chorus. Too many men, too many people, making too many promises, and not not, not enough love to go around. Can't you see, this is a land of confusion. A land of confusion. Those words just kind of stuck with me because as I look around, as as you look around, you probably recognize that we do live in a land of confusion. Right and wrong kind of get flip-flopped. Good and bad. The line that used to be between what was right and wrong, good and bad, that line has been erased and redrawn so many times that uh, we don't even know where the line is or if there's even a line anymore. That's how, that's how much it's changed over the course of time and how confusing things have become. As I was preparing for this message, I ran into a story by a guy named Tony Campolo. Some of you may have heard of him. Uh, Tony used to live in Philadelphia as a, uh, as a young man, and uh, growing up around Halloween, the night before Halloween was called Mischief Night in Philadelphia. And what would happen is these teenagers would get together and they would create all kinds of mischief in the city. They would turn over trash cans. They would let air out of the car tires. They would, you know, uh, roll houses, roll with toilet paper. I mean, just create all kinds of mischiefs and, and nuisance so that you'd go out and go, hey, kids, get off my lawn. But one night... They decided they'd do something different. He and a group of friends decided that instead of going out and creating this kind of chaos in town, they were going to break into the local five and dime store, the Woolworth store that was there in town. And when they broke in, they didn't break in to steal. They didn't break in to destroy. This is what they did. They went in and they spent the night switching price tags. So the next morning when Woolworths opened up for business, You could buy a toaster for a nickel, but a piece of candy would cost you $15. So people who went in there, and even the employees, had no idea the value of the items that were in front of them. And I look at that, and I'm going, you know what? That is a perfect description of where we are. This land of confusion where we really don't know what has true value anymore what's really valuable and what's not very valuable things have changed so very very much we need some help figuring it out so you go well well, wait a minute we live in a time where there's more information available than at any other time should that not fix our problem well let's think about this with A few taps on the keyboard, you have access to reams and reams and reams of information. I remember back when I was growing up, my dad, 
if I had a question for him, I'd ask the question, and he would say, look it up. I have passed that on to my children. Look it up. But when he meant look it up, he meant either go to the dictionary or the set of world book encyclopedias that were on the shelf. Now, our world book encyclopedias were already about eight years out of date. Things changed a lot, but those things never caught up. You just had to kind of buy new volumes. That was kind of the whole thing with encyclopedias. You had to, had to keep buying new volumes to get the most accurate information. That's not true today. If I want information, I left it on there. If I want information, all I have to do is pick up my cell phone, open it up. To be honest, I don't even have to type in what I want. If I push the button, I can ask my phone for information, and typically it gives me information. It has access to so much information. Someone has said that there are 1.2 terabytes of information on the Internet. I don't even know what that means. And so I had to come up with a different way to figure this out. So let me give you a a visual picture. Uh, In 2013, that was the latest I could find, but in 2013, EMC Corporation did a study to determine the amount of information that's in the digital universe. You can't see this, but if you look with the thing on the left, what they were saying, what they said was, um, in, in 2013, if you took all the information that was available in the digital age, and, and you used uh, an iPad, which is what I've got here, that in 2013, if you filled these iPads with information and you stacked them up, that the stack would reach two-thirds of the way to the moon. That's how much information is available digitally. But then they projected out 2020. And they said it wouldn't be one stack. It would be six and a half stacks from here to the moon of information that's available. You see, our problem is not a lack of information. Our problem is not a lack of knowledge. It's just we don't know exactly what to do with it. I mean, if you've got this much information, that's kind of encouraging because you think, wow, that should mean lots of advances in in medicine. That should mean lots of advances in education. That should be lots of advances in society because we've got all this information. So there's a lot of potential for good But when you look at all that information and the access to it, you also notice there's a lot of potential for bad. There's a lot of potential for scandal. There's a lot of potential for sleaze. There's a lot of potential for slander. It happens all the time. There's a lot of potential for destruction. Having access to that information itself is not the answer to our problem of living in a land of confusion. In fact, in many ways, it may add to our problem. So if it's not knowledge that we need, what is it? I want to suggest to you this morning that what we need living in this land of confusion is wisdom. And there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Let me, let me give you a couple of layman's definitions. First of all, knowledge. Knowledge is, for the most part, the accumulation of facts and information. That's what knowledge is. And many of you have knowledge uh, first-hand knowledge on things. You've, you've been to school or you, you have experiences in your job or you, you've gained experiences in life and you have knowledge. And knowledge is a good thing. If I am getting ready to have surgery, do you know what I want my doctor to have? I want my doctor to have some knowledge. I want him to know when he opens me up what it is he's looking at, what needs to be done. I don't only want him to have knowledge. I want the anesthesiologist to have knowledge because if, if he or she puts me to sleep, I want him or her to be able to wake me back up. 
And I even want the nurses who are in there to have knowledge. I want them to know what's going on and say, oh, no, doctor, it's his right leg, not his left leg. There are people, we, we want them to have knowledge. If you take your car in because a little check engine light has come on, you want that person who's working on your car to have knowledge. You want them to, to know what they're looking at when they pop open the hood. You don't want me under there. But you want someone who has knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing, but knowledge is not all we need. Let me give you the definition of wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom considers the information that's available, but it also involves an awareness of the world around you, an acknowledgement of what you don't know. Listen, that's one of the biggest parts of, of wisdom is knowing that there's a lot you don't know. And then a perspective beyond self that gets us a little bit closer to what wisdom is and it certainly differentiates itself between just knowledge just just facts just information and so this morning I want us to consider wisdom and as we do I want us to open up God's word we're back in James we've been there for a while we've got a little while yet to go but we're in James chapter 3 and we're going to look at verses 13 to 18 we want to hear what James has to say to us this morning about wisdom. James chapter 13, uh, excuse me, 13, chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And here is what we read. Who is wise and has understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In chapter 1, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should what? Ask God. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Now, now, why is it important that we ask God for wisdom? There's a lot of wisdom out there in the world, right? Well, because what we have just read here in James chapter 3 is that there are actually two kinds of wisdom. There are two kinds of wisdom based on which we can live our lives. And here's the thing. Everybody in the whole world, in the church, out of the church, in the United States, in another country, everybody in the world bases their decisions on one type of wisdom or the other. Further, however we make those decisions, it's going to have results, fruits, consequences on the other end. And so let me put this in, in just one sentence. It's a lengthy sentence, but let me put this in one sentence for you. If your decisions affect your life and the lives of those around you, and they do, 
And your decisions are shaped by the kind of wisdom that you're using, and they are, then it would be incredibly wise of all of us to consider whether that wisdom is of the world or from above. Since the decisions you make are based on one type of wisdom or the other, and those decisions are going to have outcomes in your life, and listen, parents, in the lives of your children, in the lives, grandparents, of your grandchildren, husbands, in the lives of your wives, wives, in the lives of your husbands, wherever you're working, whoever you're associating with, your decisions, based on whatever wisdom you're using, are not only going to affect you, they're going to affect others either for good or for bad. And so we would be wise to step back and go, hey, wait a minute. I'm making decisions, but what are they based on? What wisdom? Is it wisdom from above or is it wisdom from this world? And so let's consider those two this morning as James presents them to us. And let's begin by looking at worldly wisdom. He calls this worldly wisdom, he uses three terms. He says earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. What does these mean? Let's, let's look at earthly first. Earthly means that it is earth-bound. It is focused on what is material, what is tangible, and what is immediate. I have, a, I have a, an eye problem. I'm nearsighted. Anybody nearsighted? Willing to admit it? Okay, nearsighted. If you're not nearsighted, here's what it basically means. It means you can see things typically close up, but the farther they are the, away... The, the less you can see them. They gets really, really blurry. So uh, you would not want me out driving without my contacts or glasses because I can't see well enough to read any signs on the road. I, I just can't. In fact, if I took my contacts out now and tried to look at the words on this page in front of me, I couldn't even see it at a distance of 18 inches. I am extraordinarily nearsighted. In order to see this, I've got to bring this book right up in front of my face If you want to understand what this earthly wisdom is, that's a good picture of it. It is very limited in its scope. It just can't see far. It has no perspective really outside of self. The second word that we have is unspiritual. Unspiritual. Now, we may think we we understand what unspiritual is, and you probably do. Unspiritual, there there are two realms here. There's the spirit world, there's the natural world. And so if we're talking about unspiritual, if we're talking about things that are in the natural world, things that deal with our senses, things that ignite our our pleasures and our, our passions, those are the things that go into unspiritual wisdom. It's all about personal pleasure. It's all about self-centered gain. The third term, you go, well, that doesn't describe, need any any explanation at all is demonic. And that basically means this. There is a wisdom because James has told us that comes from above. But there's another kind of wisdom that comes from below. And you may be thinking that you're basing your decisions purely on what is good for you. You know, I'm making decisions. I, 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 God said this. I know God's leading me to go that way. But I'm choosing to go this way. I'm doing this on my own. I'm doing this my own way. And you think, you know what, I'm the master of my own fate. I'm using my wisdom, my knowledge, the best of my ability to accomplish this. You know what James is telling us? You are not. You may think you are setting your own course, blazing your own trail. But all you've done is falling into line behind the father of lies 
the great deceiver, the one who came to steal, kill, and destroy. The wisdom is not from you. It's from below. This earthly wisdom has its roots sunk in Satan's wisdom. And so we're buying into that. It's not just that we're making bad decisions, bad human decisions. Our decisions have an ungodly influence. The wisdom this world promises, of course, is freedom, happiness, pleasure, satisfaction. And you know what? There may be a little bit of that in there. I, I, I tell people all the time, listen, if sin wasn't any fun, you wouldn't do it. Usually it's because there's a promise of something that you're going to, it's going to deliver on the other end. And so you may have moments of happiness, but ultimately it can't deliver. Ultimately it ends in disaster. It ends in bitterness. It ends in envy. It ends in chaos. It ends in addiction. It ends in self-centeredness. It leads us to a land of confusion. And this is super important. And I want you to hear this. And you really need to hear this. We read this and we go, oh, yes, pastor, I can, I can sympathize. I can empathize. I fully understand. It's a, it's a bad, bad world out there. That's not what James is saying. James is talking to believers. James is talking about the church. He's giving us a warning that if we follow the wisdom of this world, if we follow this kind of wisdom, it's leading us to a bad place. And what we find out is we've invited, we've invited this wisdom to come into the church. We're going to end up with the same thing that the world experiences. We're going to end up with disunity. We're going to end up with envy. We're going to end up with gossip. We're going to end up with backbiting. We're going to start adopting the world's methods right here among the people of God. And it will lead us to a land of confusion. Some of you have experienced this. You've been in churches. You know exactly, exactly what I'm talking about. When church leaders and church members began to make decisions based on self and not based on the Lord's will, the Lord's heart, the Lord's passions. Because at the center of worldly wisdom is self. That's, that's at the very core, the very center, because Satan doesn't need to get us to worship him. All Satan has to do is get us to worship self. All he has to do is to get us to think that we are the center of the universe and it's all about me, myself, and I. That's all he has to do. And that self-centeredness can really take two forms. One, it has to do with our relationships to others, how we relate to other people. When we become the center of the universe, then we become Pharisees. We develop condemning attitudes, we develop critical spirits, and we divide up into groups. Of course, it can be a little more subtle than that. When we are at the center of the universe, even in the people, among the people of God, we may tend to withhold forgiveness. 
We may tend to harbor bitterness, to hold on to a grudge, or to subtly spread gossip. Either way, we're doing the devil's work of sowing seeds of discord, disunity, and chaos. Now, the second form of this selfishness has to do with our relationship with God. And, and I really want, I, I want us to hear this because our purpose as people is to bring glory to God. And everything that you do, whether in word or deed, do it all as if you're doing it for Jesus. Do it all for the glory of God. Our lives are to be lived for the glory of God. It's not just what happens in this building that's to be done for the glory of God. Our entire lives are to be lived for the glory of God. But here's what's happened with this self-centered kind of thinking that has slipped into the church. Worship and church in general have become a self-improvement project. I want you to think about this. Because I believe this has seeped into this 21st century American Christianity in a way that it never has before. Should sermons be practical and give practical application? Yes. But are you here primarily to improve yourself, to become a better you? I sure hope not. That's not what this is about. We don't want to put a banner outside that says, hey, come and fix yourself. Instead, we want to say with the psalmist, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. On Thursday nights, we have a group that gathers, celebrate recovery. It's not just for people who have drug or or alcohol addictions. It's for anyone with any hurts, any habits, any hang-ups. Can I tell you what? It is not a self-improvement project. It is not like going down to Home Depot on Saturday morning with your kids to build a birdhouse. That's not what it's about. It's about entering into a relationship with the God who is. Not the God who we want him to be, but the God who is. Coming face to face with reality of who God is and who you are in the presence of God. And it's not about, okay, what can I do this week? What can I check off my list this week? It's about being transformed from the inside. But that's not why we came. We didn't just come to to get better. We came to encounter God. The shift has to move from me to him because when that happens, then change does happen. That's where radical change happens. The church is not primarily about self-improvement. It's about self-abandonment. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves. Take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life, they're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. My focus is not simply about making myself better. My focus becomes making, my, making more of Jesus, lifting up Jesus, so that you and I can say with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. Do, do you see the difference here? Do you, have, do you see how subtle that is? Go to, go to any 
um, Christian bookstore. And listen, there's some excellent books out there, excellent resources. But many of them are, hey, listen, three steps to this, five steps to that, seven steps to this. What is that saying? That's no different than going down to Home Depot and finding a book on how to build build a deck and add it to your house. And that's what American Christianity is becoming. A series of self-improvement projects. Let's face it. At the end of the day, most of us end up right back where we started. Because it doesn't work. What we need is an encounter with the Almighty. The other day I was reading back about Isaiah's encounter with God in the temple. Saw the Lord high and lifted. When's the last time you saw the Lord high and lifted up? Most of the time, you know, let me throw my arm around Jesus and we'll just go skipping down the dirt road together. When was the last time you encountered God and it did to you what it did to Isaiah when he looked at him and he recognized who God was and he looked at himself and he recognized who he was and he said, woe is me. For I'm undone. That word literally means I am becoming unraveled. When I see who God is and I see who I am, I'm literally falling to pieces. Every once in a while, I've had the the opportunity to meet someone who was kind of higher up than I am. Might be a politician, maybe someone who's a, 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 a sports star or something like that. It doesn't happen very much, but every once in a while, I get into the presence of somebody like that. I get tongue tied. I don't know what to say. Listen, if that happens to me in the presence of a human being, what happens in the presence of God? You want to bring change in your life? Don't go after the change. Go after the God of change. Church is not a self-improvement project. Church is about self-abandonment so that our identity Becomes totally wrapped up in him. That's a little extra I've thrown in just for free. Won't charge you for that. But the world's wisdom is wrapped up in self. But God says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Understanding who God is and who we are in his presence. That's where true wisdom begins. So let's consider what is this wisdom then? From above. Wisdom from above. In chapter 1 of James, James says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. That means, you know, sometimes our parents might, might have been like that or might be like that, where one day, you know, they're patting us on the head, patting us on the back, and the next day they're kicking us in the behind. You know, that their personalities change, how they respond to us changes. God's not like that. He's consistent. He's persistent. He's always the same. And he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So James tells us here, when we want to understand this wisdom, what comes from above, James is helping us to understand what it's like right here. First of all, he tells us that what comes from above is good and perfect. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. 
every good and perfect. If, if Jesus said, if you human beings ask your father for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Coming down from the father of lights who doesn't change. He is light. He is glory. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. He is, he is always generous. He is always giving. We always see God giving. He's constantly giving. He's constantly pouring out. And that's why James said, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Because he's going to give. He's going to give. He's not going to criticize you. God's going to give you wisdom because that's the kind of God that he is. Now, the wisdom that comes from above He gives us an idea here in chapter 3 what that wisdom is, and it's drastically different in both its nature and in its results from worldly wisdom. And so let's consider these really quickly. First of all, he says it's pure. It's untainted with selfish or ulterior motives. It's pure. It's undiluted, untainted, unmixed. It's peace-loving. That is, this this kind of wisdom he gives us is not a wisdom that's trying to stir up trouble. Not a wisdom that's trying to gain an advantage, but truly loves shalom. Loves peace. It's gentle. It doesn't insist on its own rights. In In fact, it shows leniency. It cuts people slack. It's compliant. We look at that and we go, I don't, I don't particularly like that word, compliant. That means you fall in the line. But what it means is the opposite of being stubborn. It's the opposite of being self-centered. It puts the needs of other people ahead of our own needs. Full of mercy and good fruits. That means it's filled to the brim with kindness and goodness. And this wisdom is without favoritism and hypocrisy. Not playing favorites, not playing hypocrite. You see how different it is? This this wisdom from above versus this wisdom that's worldly, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. The world's wisdom is all about me. What I want, what I like, what makes me happy, what my preferences are, getting my way. You ever seen that happen in a church? Happens all the time. And listen, don't think I'm up here accusing you. I'm in the boat with you, okay? This can impact all of us. The wisdom from above, however, brings glory to God, which is why we're here. But it also is a blessing to others. And instead of creating chaos, it brings peace. It brings harmony. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. It just shows you how important this is. When Jesus went into the garden to pray before his crucifixion, his arrest and crucifixion. You know what Jesus prayed? Father, I pray, talking about us now, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one. 
I pray that among them there may be unity and harmony and peace. Why? Because it is a reflection of the character of God. God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there there is peace and harmony and shalom. That's what should exist in the church. That's what God has called us to. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Church, we're to be sowing seeds of peace. So I just want you to think with me. What kind of seeds are you sowing? What kind of seeds are you sowing in your conversations, both inside and outside the church? When when you're alone, and you're off in the corner talking to that friend who's in your small group or maybe who serves on the same ministry team with you. What are you saying then? When, when other people aren't hearing you, are you sowing seeds of peace or seeds of suspicion? Disunity. The Bible says those who sow seeds of strife are going to reap chaos. But those who sow seeds of peace will reap peace. This is a message for the church. It's not a message for the world. This is a message for the church. The, church, the world won't get this because they're operating on their wisdom. You and I might because we have a heavenly source of wisdom. I remember being in a summer camp, Camp Caroline. It was in Arapahoe, North Carolina. I remember it for a number of reasons. I think it's where I first actually liked a girl. She didn't like me back, but, you know, at least I liked her. Um, it, it's, I, I actually was a counselor there for, for a time, not when I was in high school, but afterwards when I was in college. But I remember hearing this prayer for the first time when I was at that camp and it's it's kind of stuck I I didn't memorize it I've always had to go back and look it up but the prayer itself stuck with me it's the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi and I want you to hear it I, I want you to hear this this morning here it is it says Lord make me an instrument of your peace where there's hatred let me sow love where there's injury pardon where there's doubt faith where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there's sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we're pardoned, and it's in dying that we're born again to eternal life. We live in a world that is so saturated with self, it's hard to keep it out of the church of God. It's hard to shake that off when we, we come in to be part of the family of God. It's easy to bring it in and let it take root here. But when we do, we invite chaos and confusion. And so... What do we do with this? How, how, do we, how do we wrap all this up? A lot of, again, a lot of information. What do, what do I do with this information? I'd, I'd like to suggest four avenues for this, four outlets for this in your own life, four applications. 
And the first one is this, zealously patrol the on-ramps to your heart and your mind. There's all kinds of stuff coming at you from all different directions. You, you've got to set up patrols to make sure that doesn't get in. You've got to be willing to say, you know what? I don't need to be watching that television show. I don't need to be reading this magazine article. I don't need to be listening to this because what I'm hearing is not based on God's wisdom at all. This is the world's wisdom. And I know what the world's wisdom is. I know what it is. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. And it's from below. I need need to be really, really careful what I put into my life. Above all things, God's word says, guard your heart. And by heart, it didn't mean just the the thing that's beating inside you. It meant the entirety of your decision making, your affections, your emotions, as well as your intellect. Above all things, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. So zealously guard the own ramps to your heart. Secondly, ask God for true wisdom. And don't be lazy about it. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, a lot of us, when we go to God and we ask for something, we just go, okay, that, well, that's done. But let, let me tell you, here, the odds are, if you pray, God, I need some wisdom, I need, I need some guidance in my life, the odds are, you know, you're not going to get in your car, getting ready to go somewhere, and you look over and Jesus is sitting there next to you in a tangible form and says, hey, listen, I'm here to tell you what you wanted to know. Nine times out of ten, he's going to say, here, I've already given it to you. If this book isn't opened, if this word isn't read, then you truly will have a hard time gaining any wisdom from God. He's given you his truth, his wisdom. We need to open it. And understand it. So when you ask, that's a good thing. God wants to give, but we need to understand that in many ways, He's already given it to us. It's just there for the finding. How, how would you be if, if you realized someone, a geologist came to your house? Tony, a geologist came to your house and said, Tony, let me just tell you right now, buddy, you are sitting on a literal gold mine. Really? Yes. Underneath your house and all throughout this land here, It's just nothing but gold, 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 gold. And you went, man, that's great. I'm rich. But you never got a shovel. You never got a backhoe. You never started digging. That's how it is with us. God says, I've given you all this wisdom. Here it is. Get your shovel out. Start digging. Don't be lazy about it. Third, seek opportunities to sow seeds of peace and refuse to sow seeds of destruction. We were in our beginning with grace class last Tuesday night. And one of the things we, I try to, we talk about in there is, as we're relating to each other, that one of the things that we, we need to leave out of the church is gossip because gossip is a, a cancer in the church. And, and I said, here's the way, first of all, you don't need to be sharing gossip, but here is a surefire way to stop it. This is Pastor Jimmy Approved. So you can use this. Someone comes to you with information. You recognize it because you've got a little wisdom from above. You recognize this is gossip. I don't need to be here and I certainly don't need to be sharing it. You have my full permission to look at them in love and say, we don't do that around here. That's not the way we talk. 
That's not part of our vocabulary. And so we need to recognize, not only should we not be sowing seeds of discord and disunity, but we also need to be actively sowing seeds of peace. And then fourth and finally, I want to invite you to get off the throne of your life and let Jesus be Lord. When we're on the throne, what we're saying is, I am the center of the known universe. It is all about me. If you want to sit on the throne, let me tell you, you will sit on the throne in the land of confusion. But if you let Jesus sit on the throne, you will know peace, shalom, harmony like you've never known it before. Some of you this morning need to let Jesus become Savior and Lord of your life. Others, you've made that decision some time back, but you have this bad habit of kind of sitting up there and shoving Jesus off the throne so you can sit up there for a time. Some of you need a new start today to come back and say, you know what, I did say Jesus was Lord and Savior, but I sure have not been living in that way. And today I want a new start. And God's willing to give you that today. Some of you may need a church home. You recognize that the world that you live in is a land of confusion. And you need a place and a people who will come around you to help discover what God has for your life. If this is it, if this is your moment, if God's been laying something on your heart all week and you've just been waiting to respond, this is your opportunity this morning.